if we were to ban semi-automatic weapons, we would ban 90 to 95% of all weapons in America. Yes. Because a non-semi-automatic weapon is a weapon where you put one bullet in or one shell and you shoot it, you take the thing, the, the shell out, you put another one in. So kind of like what our founding fathers had? That's a nonsense. Stay tuned. That's just part of what's ahead in our bonus content. More conversation coming up after this week's edition of In Focus. Exploring the issues that matter most in Indiana. This is In Focus with Dan Spieler. Good morning, I'm Dan Spieler. Congress back to work in D.C. this coming week with much of the national conversation still focused on guns. Students who survived the school shooting in Florida have been a big part of that conversation. Confronting lawmakers at town hall events, some of them even went to the White House this past week to meet with the president. This is a long-term situation that we have to solve. We'll solve it together. How many schools, how many children have to get shot? I don't understand why I could still go in a store and buy a weapon of war, an AR. Your comments this week and those of our president have been pathetically weak. We're going to do strong background checks. We're going to work on getting the age up to 21 instead of 18. We're getting rid of the bump stocks. And we're going to be focusing very strongly on mental health. This president and our entire administration will continue to focus renewed energy on making our schools safe, on taking a fresh look at giving law enforcement and families the tools they need to deal with those struggling with dangerous mental illness. Vice President Pence among those speaking this week on the issue of school safety. The president also invited a number of people to the White House Thursday, among them, Indiana Attorney General Curtis Hill, he and others from around the country, came to the White House to talk about school safety. Specifically, Hill brought up Indiana's red flag law. We're one of five states that allows police to take possession of firearms from people they believe are dangerous. What that does, it gets us past the issue of the person's mental illness. We address the taking of the guns. We get them in court. They're allowed to have their day in court. But in the meantime, we're able to, to cool down this process and take the guns from someone, which is exactly the type of thing that we're not having all over the country. Florida's attorney general was at that meeting as well. This week, our Matt Smith also spoke with Indiana lawmakers on both sides of the aisle. I support the Second Amendment. I think that everyone who has a firearm should go through training. But I do think that we need extra precautions and filters for those who have a history of mental health issues. And, and, and I'm concerned about the influence of groups like the NRA uh, in Congress, of which I was a member for just one year, uh, as a police officer. But I'm concerned about their growing influence and the fact that members of Congress are refusing to deal with critical gun legislation that impacts their very constituents. I've always supported robust uh, background checks and, and uh, so I'm open to uh, that conversation. Whatever proposal uh, the president puts forward, uh, we'll study it closely, but uh, clearly we're still gathering all the facts. Uh, we know that the FBI, um, though I really respect the organization, they missed uh, a couple of re reports of danger here in this situation. We also know that we had a mentally ill in in individual obtain a firearm. We never want that to happen. Uh, the last thing is I think there's an opportunity for improvement of school safety. When we send our kids off to school, there ought to be strong confidence uh, that those kids will be safe. Indiana is not Florida. We have, uh, we, we have laws on the books that do help, but I don't think it's enough. And I think we find, uh, you know, I, I don't think we can do enough to make our schools safer. So uh, we'll continue to work at it this session, over the summer and next year, particularly to find the funding. I personally 
think we probably do need to strengthen our background checks. All right, I don't think I don't have a problem with that. We're talking about you know who can buy a gun, how old should you be to be able to access one, etc. I also think we need to recognize that uh, there's a lot of mental health issues with uh, these people who are doing this, and that needs to be recognized. In the meantime, a number of bills loosening gun restrictions and background checks advanced at the State House. One bill moving forward waives the lifetime handgun carry permit fee. Another makes it clear that people can bring guns onto church grounds, even if a school is also on the premises. Also this past week, lawmakers rejected an effort to require Indiana schools to provide training to react to an active shooter situation. State Rep Scott Pilath offered an amendment to a bill to require annual training on this topic, but the House rejected it and did not take a vote. Things are winding down at the State House with a little over two weeks remaining in this year's session, which may be remembered most for Sunday alcohol sales. It's now passed both the House and Senate on its way to Governor Holcomb, who's expected to sign the bill soon. Now, after years of debate, Sunday alcohol sales could now be one week away from reality. Shannon Hauser has more. This Hoosier is giving alcohol sales on Sunday a big thumbs up. People stuck in the old ways instead of the new ways. The new law is expected to be signed by the governor soon. Uh, we won't let too, too many Sundays pass. Uh, before, <laughs> there's a pen on my desk. We're, we're uh, waiting the process to take its course. Ron Miller, owner of Cork and Cracker and Broad Ripple, says it's about time. I've always felt like the Indiana laws were a little bit backwards where we could go out and drink. Um, but we couldn't take a bottle of wine home. But the new law will come with some adjustments for businesses. I was kind of not looking forward to, to having to schedule either myself or my employees on Sunday. Liquor stores have a little bit more of a challenge because all of our clerks are licensed and trained by the Indiana State Excise Police. John Cinder, owner of Crown Liquor, says they're ready for Sunday sales, but it will be a challenge to get things in order so quickly. Sunday sales will start as soon as the governor signs the bill into law. As far as if stores will profit from the extra day of sales. It's difficult to model sales like that. Don't think my profits are gonna go up. It will cost me a little bit. Um, you know, it's gonna cost for an, an employee. Now, the hours for Sunday sales will be 12 to 8 p.m., but beware, this doesn't mean every store has to be open all or any of those hours. And again, the expected first day for Sunday sales next Sunday, March the 4th, one week from today, if the governor indeed signs that bill into law this coming week. Coming up next, the politics of potholes. We're taking tough questions to Mayor Hogshead and Governor Holcomb about the condition of our roads and taking a look at what they're doing now to fix them. But next, we'll take a look at this past week's Republican debate among the candidates for U.S. Senate. So who has the edge? Our panel's weighing in right after this. I've always supported, I will always accept the help of anyone who agrees with my agenda. Parkland students speaking out at this past week's town hall on gun violence, an issue the president and Congress have also been talking about this week. Let's talk about it now with our panel. Indy Star columnist Tim Swearens, two former state lawmakers, Democrat Christina Hale, Republican Mike Murphy, and former communications director for the Indiana Democrats, Jennifer Wagner. There are certainly some measures being talked about since Florida, uh, the state of Florida, perhaps raising some limits, age limits on gun purchases, some other measures being discussed. Uh, will we see real change on guns, and how much credit do these students deserve for being 
right at the center of this conversation. I think they deserve a lot of credit. Um, they showed up, they were angry, they had a right to be angry, they expressed themselves in the very most democratic way, and I think if anything is going to change this debate, this is going to be it. Um, I think you see the NRA kind of doubling down and some people stepping away from them. And I think you see elected officials in Florida taking the right approach um, to maybe changing some of their laws. That being said, I don't have a whole lot of hope. We've had a lot of shootings and not much has changed. There was a great deal of intensity at that town hall and others that we've seen this past week. Yeah, you know, in modern American history, we have a, a, um, a record of youth making a difference. I mean, they changed the Vietnam War, right? It was kids not much older than this. So I have no doubt that they will be able to make a difference. The thing we have to be careful about is that it's not a knee-jerk difference. That we actually talk about mental health in other ways that, to make sure that only people who should own guns do own guns. And it's not just an age thing. That's, that's, that's a knee-jerk reaction. That may be an easy thing, an easy piece of the recipe, but we've got to talk about how do we make sure that people who have mental health problems do not own guns. Well, another aspect that's been discussed, the president has been mentioning a lot, talking about arming teachers. And this is an idea that actually did come up in the Indiana General Assembly a couple of years ago when you served in the legislature. Yes, I believe Representative Jim Lucas had proposed this bill. It got heard and it got shot down, no pun intended, right. for very good reasons. I mean, there are a lot of things that can happen in a classroom when there's a gun and when people may lose control of that gun. So I think people were chessboarding out, you know, what possibly might happen and what's the best way to protect students. And we even saw we had an armed officer there in Florida who didn't respond as we had expected. Right. So anything can go wrong at any time. You, you heard that student talking about the NRA there as well and the role they play in politics. Yeah, and, and, and I, I'm going to uh, do some counter arguments here. I thought the CNN town hall was unfortunate. Uh, I, I thought it in, was inflammatory. We, we do need thoughtful steps made to address this problem, and accusing a U.S. senator of being the equivalent of a mass murderer is not productive. Uh, I, I'm not blaming the kids who are involved. They've been traumatized. I do blame CNN for putting traumatized teenagers on national TV and a very emotional. Th these, these kids have gone through uh, a very traumatic event, uh, and I think we need to be, as Americans, we need to be concerned about their health, um, and as a parent, I would not want one of my traumatized children put on national TV cameras in the moment and expect them to react in a mature way. They've got a right way. to speak to us. They Senator definitely have a right to speak, I mean, but, but journalists also have an obligation to think about what we're putting on the air. Well, and this was more than just one town hall. They've been through many yes. different outlets and... Uh, and the walkout. So, exactly. Here locally, there's going to be marches. I think March 14th, the kids from Rebuff High School are going to have some kind of a right. day and, and off the difference march. is that the, the, the kids at Rebuff were not, not just subjected to an extremely traumatic That's event. True. I'm not saying that, that teenagers and, and children shouldn't, don't have a right to be heard. They do. What I'm talking about is mature adults stepping back and saying, are we exploiting these kids or are we helping further a very important debate? We need to have that discussion. We need to take action. We need to move beyond discussion. But we also need to recognize what's being done to these children. That's the same point Daniel Lash made today is, is, you know, it builds ratings, but does it really bring about good policy? Well, that point was not taken very well by some of the media. I mean, because specifically she had suggested that the media loves these shootings. No, no, we do not. No, that's and, not and that's an unfair statement. I mean, there, there are, there's, um, irresponsible statements made on both sides of this debate. And this is just too important a subject to have 
it, to, to have these types of extreme things thrown around by both sides. The Journal point journalistic integrity does play a role, but these are people, this is newsworthy, and their thinking is important. They are stepping up to say, no more. We are the only country where we have a series of these events happening. And we've hit that tension point where, you know, people are going to be talking about this and mobilize. And to your point, the point has also been made. Uh, should these students be talking? They've been traumatized. Maybe they're too young to handle the situation. Others have turned that around and said, well, should they then be allowed to purchase and own and operate a gun at the age of 18? That is a fair question to ask. Well, I think these are 16 and 17-year-olds, so they're not allowed to own a gun. Right. We're, we're talking about in, whether an 18 or 19-year-old or 20-year-old should be. So it's a little bit different issue. But I think in this instance, you've got the first time when we have, these are high school students, right? When we had Sandy Hook, they were, those were little kids. That was their parents speaking. These kids, I think they do have a right to speak out. I don't disagree with you, Tim, that maybe it was an incendiary situation, but some of these other events that have happened, look, these are kids that deserve to have their voices heard. Their, their classmates were gunned down in front of them. They deserve to be heard. You heard the student confront uh, Senator Rubio there about the NRA. Tim, your colleague Suzette Hackney wrote this week that Indiana Senator Todd Young's NRA ties make him a, quote, ineffective leader. We talked about the donations he's received last week, nearly $3 million from the NRA. Uh, how does the NRA fit into this entire conversation about gun control? Well, they certainly fund a whole lot of politicians out there in the broader world, from general assemblies in many states to Congress to our U.S. president. So I think we do need to follow the money and pay attention and quid pro quo. There's, there's a lot out there, and it's out of control. Marco Rubio made the point that, look, these, I received a lot of donations, but these are people, the money originally coming from people who donated to the NRA, from voters who yeah, supported that group. You know, it, it's more than money. Um, first of all, most people who give to you, to Christina or myself as former politicians, give to us because of what we've done, what we believe in, we don't vote for something because somebody gives us money. I think there's a, there's a pretty significant distinction there. But there is a significant grassroots power in the NRA. I mean, when I was running for office, um, they would send out orange uh, postcards if they were for you, and they would do a, a phone tree. And it was very effective in helping me in my case because I was very uh, pro-NRA. Politicians should be held accountable for their positions. But I also think consistency is important. Todd Young has been taken a lot of, of heat this week. Joe Donnelly's escaped. Uh, but Joe Donnelly's position on the Second Amendment is very much identical to Todd Young's. But, we're, but, but so much of this has been targeted at Republicans, and it becomes a partisan issue when it really should not. We pointed out last week that Senator Donnelly, among Democrats, also has received uh, some six-figure donations from the NRA. Meantime, three Republicans looking to take on Senator Donnelly this fall squared off in their first debate last week, sponsored by Americans for Prosperity. They were not asked about this gun issue, but they did discuss a number of issues related to taxes and the economy. I also want to welcome my opponents tonight. Mike, welcome to the Republican Party. Luke, welcome back to Indiana. We will stay focused on Joe Donnelly, beat him in this election. Friends, we have to have an adult conversation about what's happening in the United States Senate today. I'm a lifelong businessman, a political outsider, not pretending to be one, and a strong conservative. So you heard there, Congressman Rokita went right after his opponents uh, in this debate. To his advantage, do you think, or do those attacks sometimes go too far? Well, Todd's do go too far sometimes. Um, I think if you look at all three of the players, first of all, it's the first time we've hear, heard them talk about issues during the entire campaign, yeah. which was refreshing. You know, Rakita came across as the most conservative, mainly, mainly based on his vote against the spending bill. Luke uh, Messer voted for it, saying, because my president, my commander-in-chief asked me to. 
Luke is trying to campaign as the incumbent, okay? He's trying to be the statesman, stay above the fray. And uh, uh, Mr. Braun was very pragmatic. He has a hundred times more experience in the business world than real life. As he pointed out, Luke Messer and Tyra Keeter are both lawyers. Neither one of them has ever practiced law. What you guys make of the debate? Some of the clips we heard there. Well, you know, I have a son who does stand up in L.A. It reminded me a little bit of Congressman Rokita at the beginning. He framed it with less, uh, a less mature opening, I think, than he might have had hoped to do. But. Um, you know, it was about the issues. I think we did learn a lot about the different candidates. I think the optics were interesting. You know, Representative Braun wearing no tie, That's rolling kind of up his thing. sleeves. He's not, yeah, it was very no Lamar tie. Alexander. Yeah. Very so. Tim Swearer. I'm all for All right, uh, so Mike Braun, meantime, you saw him up there on the stage, also facing some flack this week because of one of his recent campaign ads dealing with immigration and the recent crash that killed a Colts player. Here illegally, Manuel Orego Savala was deported twice and had multiple convictions and arrests. Drunk, he hit and killed Jeffrey Monroe and Colts linebacker Edwin Jackson. All right, so that's the ad. You saw Jackson and Monroe's pictures in that ad. Monroe's widow isn't happy about it. She told the Indy Star for them to use his picture, his name, without even the courtesy of a phone call. She said that was disgusting in her words. She says she's called Braun's campaign several times. She says her calls have not been returned. The campaign told the Star they are praying for the victims and their families, but did not say whether they'd be making any changes to the ad. What do you make of this? That's just an unfortunate situation. I mean, you never want to use someone's likeness, especially in a situation like this one, without getting permission from the family. You know, I don't know that it's going to reflect on him as a candidate, but it certainly does give us all pause about, you know, these things. This, this, it's just too crass. It was public record. The whole incident is public record. But this is another rookie mistake by Mike Braun. It's time for him to quit making rookie mistakes. We only have eight weeks to go. Okay. Meantime, we just have a couple weeks left in the legislative session. We talked about Sunday sales earlier. It took years to pass the bill. Now we're finally here. Uh, a historic moment. What else are you watching for in the last days of the session? Yeah, and it's really funny, too. We were talking earlier. Why did they declare an emergency on this bill? So now we can rush out and buy <laughs> all the lines. <laughs> oh, oh, now it's going to go into yeah, effect so in right March, away. We're be right. lining up. Yeah. Um, we're really looking for more significant issues. And I it really hurts my heart that they didn't take redistricting more seriously. You know, Speaker Bosman's name was on this bill. You're telling me he couldn't get a bill heard? Come on. I, there are more important urgent issues before us. With, is this what the session will be remembered for, Sunday sales? Sunday, it will be, un yeah. maybe unfortunately, because redistricting is far more important, but got, got nowhere, no steam. Maybe next year, maybe they'll see that as an emergency. All right. Meantime, real quick on City County Council, a new chapter. The short-lived Stephen Clay presidency is now over Vop Ossoli, the new council president, a, a well-known name uh, amongst uh, Indiana Democrats. Yeah, we, we barely knew ye, President Clay. Um, yeah. I couldn't be happier. Vop is a great guy. Um, he's done great work for our city, and I think he will help get the council back on track, help kind of get that governing body the reputation it deserves, not the past eight weeks, which have been a bit of a disaster. All right, we've got to wrap it up right there. Coming up next, the politics of potholes. Is it a bump in the road for the Hogsett administration? Their latest plan patch things up next substantive stuff there's nothing you can tell me tonight though i can't tell you tonight we're still working it out that was mayor hogsett thursday night dodging some of our questions on the pothole problem he did speak with the media friday announcing plans to request 14 million dollars from the city's rainy day fund to fix thousands of potholes across the city 
It's not just a pothole problem, as Deanna Albritton reports. It's becoming a political problem, too, for the city and the state. The state has stepped forward and reached out to make sure that we have the facilities, uh, asphalt facilities, that can start um, meeting the need right now. I have ordered the city to declare an emergency that will allow us to deploy road resurfacing contractors, not pothole patchers, but road resurfacing contractors who will begin removing and resurfacing whole sections of roads across our city. Before we even tracked Mayor Hogsett down, Marion County GOP Chair Jim Merritt was already criticizing his approach to communication. The mayor needs to come out of the 25th floor and work on this and talk to us. Let us know what the plan is. DPW says it filled nearly 31,000 potholes during their last blitz three weeks ago, but they acknowledge many roads they patched again look like this. We have the same frustrations that Indianapolis drivers do. They'll see us fix a chuck hole one day. A couple of days later, it's gone because the rain may have washed away the winter mix. The weather has not been cooperative whatsoever, but uh, we have no plan. We have no idea when the mayor says they're going to be out next week. We don't know what they're going to be doing. All they're doing is putting a Band-Aid on it. But again, the mayor says this new plan will not be just a Band-Aid, a new statement also from Jim Merrick calling the mayor uh, Pothole Joe. This is definitely the politics of getting city work done, filling, fixing the roads, filling the potholes. Yeah, and they're going to get it done, and six months from now, it's going to be lovely outside, and we'll all be enjoying, you know, a beer on a Sunday on our front porches, and we won't remember this. Are they worse this year, though, than they've been in the past? Much worse, and, and the so? city's been very flat-footed, very slow to respond. I mean, our streets are crumbling. Are. They're in horrible shape. Well, it's also 50 shape. years of neglect we're inheriting now, too. We've got to invest more deeply and broadly in infrastructure. Wait, wait, wait. Peterson was elected in 99, so it's been... All right, we got yeah, to yeah. Winners and losers right after this. <laughs> Stick around. All right, time for winners and losers. Tim, you're up first. Two losers this week, the NRA for obvious reasons, and Joe Hogsett for an inadequate response on potholes. Two winners, Bob Bosley and Maggie Lewis, for showing leadership in this trying time for City County Council. One winner, Ann Hathaway, the most qualified woman ever to be named to the Republican National Committee for Indiana. You get the last word. Uh, my loser has to be Rick Gates and anyone associated with this ongoing Russia investigation. More to come, more indictments, more questions. And more to come on that coming up on Fox News Sunday and Face the Nation. We'll see you next Sunday in Focus. Well, let's talk a little bit more about this gun issue here in our bonus coverage here on the podcast. And Tim, you were making the point earlier that really Senator Young's position on guns and Senator Donnelly's has not been all that different through the years. Senator Young even made that point in an interview this past week. Senator Donnelly uh, opposed the assault weapons ban uh, earlier during his time in Washington. Uh, you feel this is an issue that, that shouldn't entirely be partisan? It shouldn't be partisan. And, you know, Joe Donnelly throughout his career has spoken very proudly of his support for the Second Amendment, uh, which, is, which is, you know, he can't run away from that now. Uh, but much of the criticism over the last week has been targeted to people like Todd Young and almost exclusively to Republicans. I'm not saying Republicans shouldn't be held accountable, but let's be consistent here and not shield pro-Second pro Amendment Democrats just because they're Democrats. So Indiana has two senators with very similar positions, but can you really broadly say that across the country 
what Tim's saying about partisanship in this issue? Probably not as broadly, but I it hurts me that this does become partisan because it also then narrows the issue and we start thinking guns only. This is about mental health. This is about um, the crumbling of the American family. This is about a lot of different things. There are many contributing factors. I don't know why we're the only country in the developed world that's having these kinds of issues, but it's certainly more complicated than gun stocks and who can buy an AK-47. It's many contributing things. And we talked about that a little bit on the podcast last week. Everyone wants to run to one particular issue when these things happen, but it's a lot of these issues all, all at once. You know, it's, it's not a matter of checking a box, saying we did, we did bump stocks and so we're done, and all of a sudden there's going to be no more school shootings. I agree. Back to your point about not generalizing about um, NRA backing by Republicans or Democrats. You can do that to some degree geographically. Mm -hmm. If you look at the geography of the nation, if you look at the South and the West, I don't count California, that's a different nation. But, uh, <laughs> you know, in, in the Northeast, they have very... Some have actually wanted it to be. That's right. <laughs> as well. They have some very different cultural mm -hmm. attitudes. But uh, to Tim's point, our fundamental rights, the, the, the ten amendments of the Bill of Rights, cannot be subject to partisanship. They should be protected regardless. We can you know, play around the edges about how we enforce things, but they cannot be subjected to, to partisan uh, Yeah, and, and I think extremists on both sides hurt the overall. Something needs to happen, right? I think we should be able to agree on that. It's, it's, it's intolerable, it's unacceptable that kids are being killed consistently in, in schools that concert goers are being slaughtered by the dozens. We just can't accept that. But what I think hurts us is that both extremes dig in. Uh, the NRA and their supporters are not willing to have a reasonable common sense approach to these things. But then we also hear people on the other side who, without really understanding what they're talking about, a ban on semi-automatic weapons, which is, I mean, you're talking about large numbers of guns that are already in circulation, but also majority of guns that are sold in this country. We also had a very interesting point in our conversation earlier talking about the kids involved in this Florida shooting and how much they should be out there carrying this message about guns in the wake of Parkland. I mean, I always think, you know, if you're personally affected by something, you are the best messenger. Now, I understand Tim's point about was it too soon? Are these kids, you know, traumatized? Absolutely they are, but to not hear their voices would be seeming to do a disservice to them in this moment when their voices matter the most. I do think, I'm not necessarily sure this is as partisan well, it is partisan, but I think a lot of folks are focusing their attention on the NRA. They make themselves a pretty easy target, no pun intended. You know, by digging in every single time one of these happens. And I mean, the bump stock thing was kind of just something they had to do after the, the shooting in Vegas, but you know, they really haven't made any concessions. And I think that frustrates people. I think all of us are a good example. Like we want to collaborate. We want to come up with those common sense solutions. But if you've got this big behemoth special interest and they are not alone by any stretch of the imagination, there is one on almost every issue, but they seem intransigent and they do overwhelmingly support a lot of Republicans, so then it becomes a partisan issue, and that's frustrating. I'd like to get back to Tim's point about semi-automatic weapons. I can, I can just about guarantee you that most Americans don't know the difference between a semi-automatic weapon and an automatic weapon. They see a black, scary rifle, and they assume it's an automatic weapon, and a quote, assault, what, what is this, an assault rifle? Any firearm you assault somebody with is an assault weapon, right? And so I'm being facetious here on purpose, but if that black rifle were pink, it would be a lot less scary, okay? 
You know, rifles I just, are scary. Rifles I just are kind think, of scary. Rifles are I just, scary. I just think we need to, we need to, to I have I think our, any rifle you see in a we school need to have our, or walking down the street is scary. We need to have our terms correct. If we were to ban semi-automatic weapons, we would ban 90 to 95% of all weapons in America. Yes. Because a non-semi-automatic weapon is a weapon where you put one bullet in or one shell and you shoot it, you take the thing, the, the shell out, you put another one in. So kind of like what our founding fathers had? That's a nonsense. Yeah, <laughs> When they wrote that? Yeah, a musket. Yeah. Oh, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> right, but, but, but here you're like trying to make another like point there. Like it or not, yeah. the Supreme Court has said that the Second Amendment protects individual rights of gun ownership. Now, the Supreme Court also said that reasonable regulation of gun ownership is permissible, it's constitutional. We've got to find that happy medium, and I, again, that's where I, I think the extremes hurt. Common ground. Hurt, yeah. right. Um, I, think it's, I think it's incumbent. If you don't like guns, absolutely, you have that right, but educate yourself. Right? Have an educated conversation about what's possible, and I think what Mike is saying, I hear from a lot of gun owners who are saying, it's really hard to have a discussion with somebody who doesn't take the time to understand what a semi-automatic weapon really is. And you know what? We are all too reactionary about so many topics. Yes. And I think that's, we have to sit down and listen and we have to come around the table and solve these complex problems. But I think that's why I'm so impressed by these young people that you mentioned, because they are finally saying like, time out no more and I think they are collectively and not just the students that were involved at that school but nationwide we're going to see a movement of students that are going to get civically involved because they've been motivated to make positive change. What if anything might we see at the Indiana State House? We actually did see a few bills this particular session that loosen gun restrictions uh, to a certain extent. Uh, nothing, nothing drastic but a few bills dealing with background checks and how many years you have to go uh, before you have to have another background check, whether or not you can bring a gun into a church, if it's also a school, things of that nature. But we talked about it earlier. There was a bill a couple of years ago in Indiana after Sandy Hook talking about should we arm teachers here in Indiana. So these conversations have been happening in the halls of our state house as well. Yeah, we have bills every year about you know having uh, uh, guns on college campuses. The absolute worst place to have a gun when you have hormones and broken hearts and alcohol and dope and other kinds of drugs. A crazy place to have to have uh, guns. What happens in in Christina? You know this. Certain people will will author the most extreme legislation possible, so they get their high rating with the NRA, and they can walk around the state of Indiana and say, "Look at me! I'm a backer of the Second Amendment." What we need is reasonableness and balance. And as Tim as Tim said, and I'm not a lawyer, but the Supreme Court did say we can put reasonable restrictions. The question is, what is reasonable? And that's a legitimate debate. I think you're right. But sometimes those bills, those showboat bills, pass. Right. So we did pass a couple of years ago a bill that said, yes, on high school campuses, you can leave a gun in your car if you're an 18-year-old uh, student. We passed a bill that said domestic violence victim, you don't have to pass background check. You can walk in and go buy a gun right now. Bring that gun into the home and you may or may not have training to use it. All too often that gun's going to be used against you or someone you love. Well no one is required yeah. to have training to use their guns in the state of Indiana. Which Good is, point you know, Jennifer. You know you there's know. a lot that we can do but we have to take a 360 look and, well, and I think you're right. We've got to just come to the table. And Mike, your point, I mean, underscores the irony. You've got all of these elected officials, many of whom are Republicans, some are Democrats, who are authoring these bills that they know are not going to pass, sometimes they do, all to get the favor of the NRA, to get the rating sure. or to get the, the contribution to their PAC. 
that's broken. Like that, the fact that we have people who are vying for that money by authoring things they know are extreme, that's a problem. And you know, another problem we have in the legislature is, and, and I may be exaggerating the percentage, but not by much, I think 80% of the legislation we pass, pass is based on emotion, um, particularly after events of you know, one kind or another. Well, and as it it's, turns out, the, just the timing of this shooting happens to come when the bulk of the work in the legislature is done this year. Would it be interesting to see um, if there were more time, if this were a long session, if anything differently would be done on the issue of guns? Yeah, so the trend in Indiana and really many other states across the country has been to loosen gun laws in recent years. Uh, I think it would, at the very least there ought to be a timeout on that. Uh, let's, let's stop the trend line to weakening gun laws and then have a conversation about what needs to be done. I think, to me, two very reasonable steps. Others would disagree that they're reasonable, however. Two re very reasonable steps. Right now, uh, somebody can walk into a gun store in Indiana and buy an unlimited number of guns in one trip, right? Um, there, there's, there are obviously problems with that, particularly if you have somebody who is planning a violent act, uh, a mass shooting. And in Indiana, you can load up in, in a hurry. Um, why not have a reasonable cap on the number of guns you can buy in a month? Uh, slow down the process a little bit. Um, the other restriction that is, is simply not conservative in a conservative state is that the state of Indiana imposes a restriction on local governments of passing their own gun restrictions. Uh, local ordinances cannot be more restrictive than existing state laws. That makes no sense. Uh, we're dealing with, uh, with a lot of gun violence in Indianapolis, for example. Uh, that's not necessarily a problem in many of the less populated areas of the state. Why not let uh, elected leaders in Indianapolis or in Fort Wayne or in Evansville deal with the problems in their communities? Why, every city why is different hands? just as every state two, is different. Two points, yeah. though. The reason that happens, Tim, is because lobbyists would rather fight one battle at the state house sure. than fight 70 battles in 70 city councils around the state. It gets a lot more expensive, number one. But number two, if you look at Chicago and look at Washington, D.C., you know, having local gun ordinances that are most, the most extreme, if you want to call them that, in the nation, just happen to be two of the, the murder capitals of the nation as well. So, and a lot of those murders in Chicago happen with guns purchased in Indiana. And they shouldn't, yeah. obviously. All right, so much we could talk about on this issue, no doubt about it. Thanks again for listening, and join us again next Sunday in Focus.